join me in prayer? Father, we bow our head before you, and we recognize that you are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of all honor and all glory. We pray now that as we approach your word, that you will pour out the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that Christ will be exalted. We pray that our hearts will be assured, the hearts of every person who believes the gospel will be fully assured of the salvation that you have provided to us through his cross and through the empty tomb. We pray that if there's one here whose life has never been transformed by the power of the gospel, that today they will be drawn to you and find salvation. And we pray that as we leave here that we will seek the things that are above, that we will set our hearts and minds on the things that, above, uh, that are above, and that we will treasure Christ and look to the day that he appears in the clouds when he returns and brings all things to a consummation. And we look to that day that he returns with hope and with joy and pray now that you would cleanse me from all things that would distract from your word. God, we are sinners through and through. And I pray, Lord, that the power of your word will be made known through what is said and done here today. In Jesus' name, amen. And go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and today as we continue in our study in the book of Colossians, we're going to walk through Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And the title of the message today is Raised, You Have Been Raised, You Have Been Raised, You've Been Raised with Christ. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. So occasionally, I'll be asked by friends that are back in Indiana, where we lived for 15 years, hey, how's your new life in Chillicothe, Ohio going? How are you doing in your new role? How are the kids adjusting to their new schools? How is your wife adjusting to a new home? And these questions all illustrate or at least recognize that there has been a major change in our life, a major shift in our life. And we have gone from one place to another place, one situation to another situation. Now that's not unique to me because when the status of our life changes, the way that we live our lives change, right? Like you think about when two people, when a man and a woman come together in marriage and there is a huge change in life. When a, a couple brings a, their first child into the world. There's a major life change that takes place. And I use that as an illustration just to bring us to the text in front of us because 
That really is what Paul is saying here in this passage. The first two chapters of the book of Colossians, Paul has presented to us the person and work of Christ and what Jesus has done for our salvation. He has explained to this church of new believers what has happened to them in their conversions. And now what happens when you get to chapter 3 is Paul will address a question, how then do we live the Christian life given this status change? Given what has changed in our life, how then do we live the Christian life? Or in other words, what does this new life in Christ look like? And the verses that we read this morning, they, they lay the foundation for the Christian life or the way that we live. And verses 1 through 4 are very critical for the rest of the letter to the Colossian church. That said, what I want to remind you of is this, is that there is a clear pattern here in Colossians, as well as all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And here's the pattern that you have to recognize. Indicatives drive imperatives. Indicatives, in, they, they drive the imperatives. What I mean is, is this, is that what Christ has done in the gospel is what fuels anything we do in the Christian life. We have got to get that. What God has done, what Christ has done in the gospel is what fuels anything we do in the Christian life. In other words, justification empowers sanctification. And if you invert that pattern, then you will be left with meaningless moralism, religious rules, and impossible perfectionism. I mean, the reality is, is that if you go to the end of chapter 2, just look at the last, the last sentence. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, mysticism, asceticism, radical discipline to the body, right? Like legalism, rules, rules, and more rules. Those things will not change a human heart, and they will not stop the indulgence of the flesh. Morality, spiritual disciplines, religious practices, independent of the sa- of saving faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will do you nothing. The gospel of God's saving grace of Christ's finished work, of the complete forgiveness of our sins, and the full assurance of our salvation is the fuel, the power of the Christian life. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to kill our sin and make us holy. It is the gospel that He uses. And so that's why when you come to verse 1, and you read these first four verses, we're going to tackle these before we get to what does it mean to kill sin. And the key truth that I want you to, to hold on to, to this, after, this, this morning is this. 
united with Christ in salvation, we now live a new life centered on Him, the risen Lord. That, that, that is the driving point of verses 1 through 4. And, and that point will carry us into the, the, the rest of what is said in the letter to the Colossians. Another way I could say that, to make it even a little bit more simplistic, is this. You, Christian, you, church, have been raised with Christ to live a life that is focused on Jesus. Laser focused on Jesus. You have been raised with Him to live a life that is centered on Him. And so the question then we ask is, well then what does that look like? What does it look like? What does this new life look like? And we are going to see four observable things in the text that define this new life that is, that is focused on Jesus that God has raised us to. We're going to look at the truth that we have an exalted life. We're going to look at the truth that we have an established purpose. We're going to see that we have an enduring identity. And then we're going to see that we have an eternal comfort. And those four things define our existence in this new life that we have in Christ. So let's look at the first thing. You have an exalted life. That's what the text says, I mean, immediately in in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if everything that has been said previous to this verse, if all of that is true, if you have died to your sin and you've been raised to a new life, then this is how you live. And so in that opening phrase, that opening clause, we see that we have an exalted life. If then. In other, that word if then, you would also translate that to say since. Since you have been raised with Christ. It refers to a completed action that you did not do, but that God did on your behalf. It is an indicative statement. And it is stated in chapter 2, verse 13. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made us alive in Him. God made us alive in Him. When you became a Christian and received salvation, you were given eternal life, and that eternal life resulted in a new existence, an exalted existence. And in fact, that exalted existence is the new life in Christ. We celebrate it every time we observe the ordinance of baptism. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 verse 4? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In other words, you were saved to walk in a new life, a new kind of existence. And so what we would say then is that eternal life or this newness of life, it begins the moment of conversion. In other words, eternal life is not something you're looking forward to. It's something that has already begun and you're looking for it to last forever. Jesus described this as an abundant life. John chapter 10 verse 10, I came to, I came to give life and to give life abundantly. And so the abundant life is a life that is lived in the heavenly places where we have received all spiritual blessings. 
Now, I realize there are some groups out here that will say, well, you know, to, to, to have an abundant life means that you have this experience or that experience or you, you get this or you get that. But, but you know what it means to live in an, to, to live an abundant life? Here, here's, here's what it means to live an abundant life. It means to live your life in the spiritual blessings of righteousness imputed to you, forgiveness given to you, reconciliation to God that has happened to you, adoption that has received you into God's family, and full assurance that you will be saved for all the ages to come. That is the abundant life. And you can't get better than that. And so for me to live an abundant life is to walk in all of these heavenly spiritual blessings that has come to me and come to you through the gospel. And that's what Paul wants this church to know. Because there are people that are coming along and saying, you know, you want to live the higher life. You want to live in the heavenly places. Then you've got to do this. You've got to follow this. You've got to watch this. You've got to listen to this. And Paul says, no, the heavenly life, the new life is a life that we live in an exalted way, in the blessings of Christ. And so in this new life, we no longer live as slaves of sin. We're no longer servants of self, but we, as Paul says to the church in Corinth, we live for Him who died and was raised for us. That's what we live for. And so that is the exalted life. So this exalted life just leads to a simple question to everybody here today. Have you been raised with Christ in true saving faith? Have you been born again? Have you been saved by the grace of God? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you have not, you're not living an abundant life. You are living a dead life, a life dead in your trespasses and sins, and a life of slavery to yourself. And so be raised by the power of the Spirit. And believe the gospel of Christ even today. And then you may walk in a new life. A new life that is rooted in Christ. So that's the exalted life that he's referring to in verse, in verse 1 in the opening clause. But what he does is, is he moves from the exalted life to the second, second characteristic of, or, or the second point about what it means to be raised with Christ. And here it is. Not only do you have an exalted life, you have an established purpose in that exalted life. Look what he says in verse 1. He continues. He says, if then or since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so what Paul indicates here is that in salvation, you don't get a purpose-driven life. You get a Christ-driven life that gives you purpose. That's what happens in salvation. You get a Christ-driven life. And Christ is the one that gives you purpose and meaning. And here, here there's a two-fold purpose that Paul identifies. First, two com- imperatives that we give. What is the two-fold purpose? Well, the first is this. Seek the things that are above. Since you've been raised with Christ, since you've been saved, since you have been born again and have a new life, then seek the things that are above. Another way to simply say that is this. Let the Lordship of Christ rule you. Let, In other words, submit yourself to the kingship of Jesus. 
It means that you should seek the mind of Christ as He has revealed His will in the Word and pursue His will for your life. Now, when we say that, some people immediately default to thinking like, you know, the will of God, like it's a mystic hidden thing, and we've got to kind of like, you know, get the magic eight ball and work the magic eight ball to see what God's will is. No, that, God's will is what He's revealed in His Word. You want to know God's will? Then just read Scripture. God has clearly revealed His will. No, it's not going to tell you who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have, what kind of job you're going to get, what college you go to, the day you're going to die. It doesn't tell you any of that. But it will tell you how to live in all of those circumstances in light of the gospel. And so these these things are... are so, so, so what he says here is seek the things that are above. In other words, seek the values of heaven for your moral life. For your moral life. And if you keep reading, just jump down to verse 5. Well, well, I don't know. Well, I mean, what, what does he mean? Uh, seek the things that are above. Put to death the things that are on earth. And then if you jump down to verse, if you jump down to verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, if you're going to seek the things that are above, then seek the things that describe or characterize Christ who saved you. So if you, keep, if you see this, it means to kill sin and be clothed in Christ and seek things like compassion, love, patience, self-control, meekness, all of these things. But the question that we still have to keep asking is why? Because again, I don't want us to fall into the trap of moralism. Why? Paul says this, so that we, he, Paul says this so that we can see what we have in Christ. The reason is simple. Why should we seek the things that are above? He says it. Look at it. Where, things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, what Paul does is, is that he shows us that the reason we seek things that are above is because Christ is alive and he's enthroned. Christ is alive and he is enthroned. What he does here in verse 1, and, and, and in verse 1 specifically, is he peels back the curtain to show you heaven as a real true existing place and to show you the heavenly places. And when Paul pulls, he pulls the curtain back just a little, do you know what we see? We see Jesus. We see Christ and guess what? He's alive and well. This powerfully upholds the truth of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ not only died on the cross to pay for, pay for our sins, but He went into the cold, dark tomb and He came to life and He walked out of the grave holding the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He is victorious over death. And Paul sees this as he writes chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation 3.18 says, Jesus speaking to John on the Isle of Patmos says, I am alive. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Yes, what Paul is showing us is that Christ is alive. He rose and he lives today. But here's the question that we, I think we overlook a lot. Right? I mean, we're great at celebrating the resurrection. 
We're great at celebrating the cross, but listen, the resurrection is just one, 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 I mean, it's essential, but it's part of the greater picture of the gospel. I mean, what is he doing now? You ever watch those VH1 specials? Where are they now, right? Well, where is he now? What is he doing right now? Well, I mean, we see that he is in heaven, but to answer the question, when we see him, it, say, it says where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Do you all remember when Jesus stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14? And Caiaphas looked at Jesus. This is right before the crucifixion, after they had arrested him and scourged him. And Caiaphas looked at Jesus and he said, are you the son of the living God? And do you remember what Jesus' answer it was? Jesus said, I am. But Mark's gospel shows us that Jesus went on. Not only does he say, I am the son of the living God, but he says, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ right there before the suffering of the cross not only admitted that he was the Son of God, but placed himself on the throne of heaven before the Sanhedrin and, and all that were there witnessing. You know what's amazing by that is? Is that that statement, seated at the right hand of power, that's a reference of Psalm 110, where Scripture says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Now, you know what Caiaphas did when Jesus said that? He tore his clothes and he looked and he said, he, he, he looked at him and said, blasphemy. And then Jesus went on to be crucified. Jesus not only claimed to be equal with God, he claimed to be the eternal son of God, and as a result was accused of blasphemy. But listen, the reality is, is that Jesus... He went to the cross and died, but he also rose from the dead. But after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he is there right now, seated at the right hand of God, meaning that he is enthroned in heaven right now. He has fulfilled Psalm 110. He has, he has held true to what he told Caiaphas. And what Paul is doing here is he is referencing that psalm. And he shows us here in Colossians 3.1 that what Jesus said and what psalm, the, the psalm predicted has actually happened. Christ is enthroned in heaven. And God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why should I seek the things that are above? Because that's where Christ is. And Christ is alive. And he is on the throne. And he is Lord. And he is King. And he is worthy for me who he has redeemed and saved. And you who he has redeemed and saved. He is worthy for us to seek him, to worship him, and to serve him. That's what Paul's driving at here. And so, dear Christian, seek the things that are above. Submit your life to him. As we walk through chapter 3, look at the things in your life and realize that if Jesus truly is Lord, and he is, then submit to him.
submit all to the lordship of Christ. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Paul says, seek the things that are above, but he gives you a second imperative. Look at it, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So Paul shifts from our moral life to our mental life. In other words, you, you, literally this could just be, this could say, seek the things that are above, think on the things that are above. Seek Christ, think Christ. Now, let me be clear here, okay? Paul is not saying, be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's not what he's saying. Far from it. And neither is he advocating some version of heaven on earth, like that 80s song by Berlinda Carlisle. You know what I'm talking about, you 80s people. So I'm not going to sing it, right? Ooh, baby, you know what it's worth. We'll make heaven on earth or something like that. Anyway, no, heaven is a place on earth. Sorry. All right. I digress. The point is, the, po- the point is, is Paul's not, he, he's not suggesting that we be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, nor is he suggesting that we're somehow going to make, make, uh, make heaven on earth. Sorry, my mind's going to Van Halen and everything else right now. So... Just, just being transparent. Okay. So, so, so here, here's a way to think of this. Set your minds on things that are above. Last summer, we spent our final, our, our final time in Columbus, Indiana. By August, after the church had called us to come here to pastor, our minds were fixed on Chillicothe, Ohio. But we were still living in Columbus, Indiana. We were thinking of Chillicothe. We were thinking about our life here. That's what began to dominate our minds. We began to prepare. But you know what? Still had to get up. Still had to go to work. Still had to fulfill responsibilities. Still had relationships and people that we were inter- interacting with. I-, I think that that kind of parallels what he's saying here. In that same way, yes, we live here on this earth. We have relationships and things that we're responsible for, spheres of influence. But even while we're living our life here on this earth, our minds are also in heaven with Christ. And because He is Lord, His thoughts, His will are to dominate the way we live here in this realm. So with that in mind, set our minds on what pleases Him. And beyond just setting our minds on what pleases Him, it means to think of Him. Think often of His person. Think often of His work. Think often of His glory and grace, of His love and mercy. Think often of the second coming and the world that will be without end. Even while you're carrying out your citizenship that is temporary here on this earth. And let the values of heaven grid over the life here on earth. And that can only be done as our minds are shaped by Scripture. Taking time to stop doing and being busy and actually delighting in Christ and treasuring His Word. Philippians 4 verse 8. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellent, if there's any worthy of, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
But here's the thing. I don't know what is pure, what is lovely, what is true, what is honorable. And first, I have God's word to reveal that to me and Christ to make it known as well. And so to some degree, we could say whatever is true, Christ is true. Christ is honorable. Christ is pure. Christ is lovely. Think on him. But Paul then says, not only set your minds on things that are above, but look at the text. He says, set your minds on things that are above. That's thinking. Seeking is living. That's, so you got moral, morality and, and, and the mind. And then he says, not on things that are on the earth. You see that? Don't set your mind on things that are on the earth. Well, what would those things be? The earthly things would be godless things. Christless ways of thinking and understanding the world. Absorption, uh, being absorbed and obsessed over self. Relying on your own wisdom and understanding. But, but actually, it's just easier to, it's easier just to look at the text. Look at verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Okay, what is, what does Paul not want me to set my mind on? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and, which is idolatry. On account of all these things, God's wrath is coming. He goes on. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, don't lie to each other. All of these things. Don't set your mind on those sinful patterns and practices. Instead, set your mind on Christ who saved you and pleasing Him. 1 John chapter 3, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2 verse 16 says, do not, Paul, John says, do not love the world or the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. And so brothers and sisters, we are be to, to be about the business of killing sin, putting death, putting to death that which is earthly in us. And the only way that we can do that is not by asceticism, not by, it's not by legalism, it's not by rules, it's not by those things, but it's through the gospel, by setting our hearts on Christ and divine truth. And we'll dig more into that in weeks to come. But I also want to drop something as a, as a word of caution to us as we think about that. Not just a word of caution, I think it's a word of encouragement. Many Christians can read this and easily conclude well, then what Paul's saying is that everything in the world is wrong. Everything is evil. Anything temporary, anything physical, anything earthly is innately wrong or evil. That's not true. And Paul has already said that's not true. If you go back to chapter 2, go to First Timothy chapter 4 and you can read this. Listen, it, again, let me repeat something. What, what Paul is showing us in this text is that the gifts of earth should be received and understood through the lens of the eternal. That's how we receive and enjoy. And so, you know what knowing Christ then enables me to do? It enables me to experience and enjoy all the good things in life without guilt. It really does. I mean, it's sad when we as Christians walk around like we, we've got to always have our head in the clouds or we always have to, we, we always have to have, be, feel guilty for enjoying the good things that God has made. And you know what that means? To experience the good things in the world? That means, you know what? It's a good thing. Watch a sunset. Hike through the hills. Playing a board game with my kids. Holding my wife. Driving to a good song, not the one I mentioned earlier. 
laughing with friends, watching a ball game, reading a great book. I'll not comment on the book that would be great. Taking a long, undisturbed nap on a spring afternoon. I haven't had one of those in 21 years, just looking over there at my kids. Because the minute I, I slip away into that nap, I hear, Dad, Dad. <laughs> That's what I always tell them when I get to heaven. I want to see Jesus, and I want to take a nap. That's what I want to do. So the point here is, is that, it, listen, the spirit, spiritual disciplines and studying the word and, and devotional life, those are important things. But so is enjoying the world that God has made. This is our Father's world. And Christ has redeemed us. And in that redemption, we can receive all the good and perfect gifts as gifts that come down from the Father of lights who has saved us by His grace. And now the, the, now the creation that we enjoy is far more beautiful than I would have ever imagined had my eyes not been opened to the Creator who made it through the Christ who redeemed me. And so we should embrace these things. And we should also recognize the dangers of sinful things and seek to kill those things and mortify those things so that we can honor Christ. So here's the truth applied to our lives. What is the aim of your life? Where are the, where are the affections of your heart? What are you seeking mostly in this life? What are you aiming for mostly in this life? Are you setting your mind on the things above? Are you seeking the things that are above where Christ is? Are you living your life recognizing the lordship of Christ, that he is enthroned in heaven, and that we are to please him? And so there's the established purpose that we're given. So we've seen that we have an exalted life that is brought to us an established purpose. But the third thing we see is in verse 3, we ha you have an enduring identity. Look at verse 3. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's identity right there. And, 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 and can I just say to you, in terms of identity, have you already noticed that everything is focused on Christ? You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him. Circle, underline, every time you see the reference to Him. He's raised you to live a life centered on Him. Which gives you this enduring identity. And what about this enduring identity? Well, there's a death to our old identity. That's what he says. He says, for you have died. We have died. In what way have we died? It goes back to what he said in chapter 2. In our union with Christ. We have died to our sin. To the penalty of our sin. Through the death of Jesus on the cross. And while the power of sin affects us. And the presence of sin is upon us. The penalty of sin no longer condemns us. We are dead to sin in that way. And as a result, the old identity has been put to death. We are new creatures. The old has passed away. And the new has come. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And as a result, all those things from our original birth, right? All those things from our original birth must now be put to death because we've been born again. Now, you know why it's important to say this? Do you understand why it's important to say the old identity is gone and the new identity has come and we have to continue to, we have to continue to kill that old identity to live in the new identity? Because our culture hates to hear this. We are told we define ourselves. We are told as a, almost like a secular orthodoxy that we choose our identity. And that whatever identity we choose for ourselves, we have to express it, we have to celebrate it, and we have to force everyone to affirm it. And anyone who would challenge the identity claim of another, well, that person is inflicting harm on a person. But the gospel is clear. There are only two identities in terms of the spiritual realm. The identity of the old man, the old nature, and the new nature. And the old man, the sinful nature, is dominated by sin and self. And the new nature has delivered us from sin and self. So, we have been freed from sin. We have been freed from this slavery to self. I don't have to worry about self-identifying myself because God has already identified me. And we see that in the creation. But here we're talking about the new creation. We have been freed to a new self. To an identity that is in Christ. Peter says that we have received, we are partakers of the divine nature. And because of this, we then put to death that identity with its desires. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see? Where's the claim for personal autonomy there? It's gone. You share life with Christ. For you to live is Christ. The life I now live, I live for the Son of God. Christ now lives his life through you, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to embrace that. And that is going to fly in the face of a culture that says, be who you were born to be. A culture that says that I was born this way. True, I was born this way. I was born a sinner in rebellion against God. But I've been born again into a new identity, into a new life. And a new life whereby Christ is Lord and Savior. That same reality takes place when a man and a woman get married. All the interests of the other become the interest, uh, 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 all of the interests of one spouse become the interest of the other. What is yours becomes the other's. And that's the same thing here. Our identity then is merged, is united to Christ. And all the blessings of his death and resurrection come to us. And so... There is a death to our old identity. But the second thing that we see is that there is security in our new identity with Christ. So notice Paul says that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This identity is better than the old one. 
The old one led to death and decay. The new life, we are now alive by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes with a seal. And when Paul says that we are hidden with Christ in God, he is guaranteeing our eternal salvation. We are secure in Christ. I don't have to wonder who I am. I am a child of God. I am a believer. I am redeemed. I am saved. I am His. You you see, there's security there because my identity is in Him. I'm a sinner, but I'm a saint. And I'm okay with that because Christ, my life is hidden with Him. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. I don't have to fool anybody. I don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to do any of that because I, my life is hidden with Christ and same with you. He is your security, your eternal security. And that's what Paul is referring to. A shelter. That's what Christ is. He is our shelter, our refuge. And so in light of that, we have been inseparably united to Christ and that's why Paul says in Romans that God, if God be for you, who can be against you? There is no salvation. There is no security. There is no identity that can give you that kind of promise and assurance other than Christ. And we live in a culture where people are falling apart trying to discover themselves. And we need to point them to the one who they can find themselves in and be saved and redeemed. So where is your identity? Where is your identity? Is your identity in Christ? Or are you trying to seek identity in something else? Or someone else? So to be raised with Christ means that we have an exalted life, an established purpose, an enduring identity. But lastly, look at verse 4. You have an eternal comfort. So look what he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul is given full perspective here. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Paul gives us an already and not yet, and not yet vision of Christ. He is ours right now. But we will eventually be with him forever. And so there are two things that bring us comfort here. We will see his greatness. That's the first thing. Look what he says. When Christ who is your life appears. Christ who is your life. In other words, Christ is your everything. The one we love, the one we treasure, who has transformed us, who has raised us. This Christ, who is our life, he will one day return. He will come again. And what Paul wants us to do on the outset here is he wants us to envision what that day will look like. He wants us to look to that day and he wants to live, us to live for that day when Christ appears. In other words, don't live for tomorrow. Live anticipating the return of Jesus. And Paul assures us that he will appear. And when he appears, we will see him. And we will see him in all his glory, all his splendor. That's what Paul's getting at. He wants you to imagine the moment that you put your eyes on Jesus Christ. What a moment that's going to be. 
And in that moment, you will see him in all of his splendor, all of his majesty. And you know what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica? And we will marvel at him. We will marvel. Our eyes will be wide open. We will gaze upon him with astonishment and amazement. That's what he's getting at. Nothing and no one will compare to him. And do you know what? When Jesus comes again, when he returns, Paul says to Titus that that is our blessed hope. Church, that is our sweet comfort. The appearance of our Savior. We will see him in all of his greatness. But it gets better than that. Because when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. We will not only see His glory, what Paul is saying there is, we will share His glory. We will, sh- we will be encompassed with it. We will be enshrouded with it. What will happen when we see His glory? <laughs> well, he says in one place that we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. On that day that Jesus appears, we will experience His glory and we will be transformed forever. We will be glorified. And you know what it means? There'll be no more sin. No more suffering. No more pain. No more death. No more graveyards. No more tears. For the former things will be done away with. And He will make all things new. We will share in His glory. And when we share in His glory, He will render judgment. He will restore creation. He will remove the curse. He will resurrect the dead and give them new bodies. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. And guess what, believer? You will share in that. Do you, do you know why that's important? Because that affects the here and now. That affects the way I live. That helps me in what, how I need to live my life under the Lordship of Jesus. That I am living, I'm holding to all things loosely, and I am looking to that day when He appears, and I see Him, nail-scarred hands, and I see Him in all of His glory and all of His wonder. And I experience that glory with you, believer, with you, church. We will experience this together, and we will dwell in a new heaven and new earth. John says, Beloved, we are now, we are God's children now, but what we will, what, and what we will has not yet appeared, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Does Christ's return comfort you? Doesn't? Will you share? And the glory of his appearing. And so, as we close today, believer, what I want you to see here in these four verses is I want you to see all that you have because God has raised you with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Do you see? Do you see it? Are you overwhelmed with gratitude for the life, for the purpose, for the identity? For the comfort that you have in Christ. Set your life and your heart on Him, church. Renew your commitment to Him. And may we together live under His Lordship. 
Christ calls you today to be united with him in salvation if you're not saved so that he will be the center of your life. And so as we respond to what we've heard preached today, how will you respond? Maybe you need to be saved. Maybe you need to come up here as we sing here in just a moment and you need to ask, how can I be saved? Or maybe as a Christian, you need to just cry out to the Lord and say, thank you for raising me from the dead and for all that you have given. But whatever your need might be, this is a time for us to stand and we're going to respond to what we've heard preached by singing. And so stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth. Thank you for raising us in Christ. And Lord, as we respond, we pray that we will rejoice in the comfort and the identity. We pray that we will rejoice in the purpose and the light that you have given us in Christ. And whatever need might be in the hearts of the people that are here, may this be a time that they can respond in worship or seek help for whatever need they might have. In Jesus' name, amen.